Hello, my name's David Runciman, and this is Talking Politics. Another extra episode for this week, a chance to catch up with Adam Tooze and Helen Thompson, and to get their latest thoughts on the economic and financial consequences of this crisis. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Improve the quality of your solitude with a subscription to the LRB. They'll send you exceptional analysis of the politics, economics, sociology and science behind the crisis and reportage from around the world, but also gloriously unrelated, richly immersive distraction from the world's best authors and critics writing about history and philosophy, art and technology, fiction and poetry. Just go to lrb.me slash talk and get your first 12 issues for just £12. That's lrb.me slash talk. The conversation that you're about to hear was recorded on Monday at 1pm London time, 8am New York time where Adam is. We were about to publish it this evening, Monday evening, and we've just discovered that the oil price, or rather oil futures price, has collapsed. Helen, just give us a snapshot of what what has actually happened since we spoke at lunchtime. Well, what has happened is, is that the West Texas intermediate oil price for delivery in May has crashed to... I think it settled at minus $37 a barrel. I think at one point it was minus $40 a barrel. I, I mean, it, it, it's near incomprehensible that uh, a oil futures contract could go into negative territory. It, it, you know, it certainly never, ever happened before. It should be said that it's not. this doesn't mean that all oil prices have collapsed. So that's that oil which is sold through the, the Brent exchanges still has a price of around about the mid 20s dollars a barrel so but people who hold those contracts are paying people to take oil off their hands well they're trying to <laughs> i think the, the conclusion we have to draw is that they're not succeeding they can't find those people <laughs> we're going to let you hear the conversation that we recorded just a few hours ago then we'll come back briefly at the end with helen to try and make sense of what this oil price collapse means. Adam Tooze is a regular contributor to the London Review of Books, and we like to speak to LRB writers whenever we can. Today's episode is pegged to Adam's article, Shockwave, on the pandemic's consequences for the world economy, and it is a definitive account of what's going on. So Adam, it was, to my amazement, now that I look at it, a month ago that we spoke in the really early days of this pandemic and the economic fallout from it. We spoke to Nate Silver a couple of days ago, and I'm going to ask you the question I asked him. What do we know now that we didn't know a month ago, do you think? There's still a lot we don't know, obviously, but there are some things we do know. What would you flag up? Well, I think we know the scale of the unemployment crisis that we're facing in many parts of the world, but obviously from the American vantage point and having watched with horror the numbers mount up week by week, that I think is probably the dominant reality of the current moment. The number I simply can't shake out of my head is the fact that Michigan's unemployment rate soared to 25% in a single month. And I believe that's not even updated for last week's numbers. But that hammering of you know Thursday morning, 8.30 a.m., 
how many million is it going to be that signed on? The first time it happened with the 3.3 million, it was a, a historic shock and everyone started adjusting their graphs, you know, to add several million to the axes so that you could graph it. And then we had the two numbers in the sixes and then 5.5 last week. So that I think is really the single biggest blow. We've, we've also, of course, learned a lot about policymaking and its potential responses. We've learned that the problems in the Eurozone have not gone away. And on the other hand, we've seen a pretty dramatic demonstration of the capacity to harness the resources of the American nation state to a stabilizing effort faced with this kind of crisis, whether it'll be enough, whether will there be to be more, whether it'll become more acrimonious politically over the months that come, let alone after, say, a putative Biden victory in a presidential election. That's all, I think, still to be seen. But we have seen an extraordinary um, burst of activism from both the fiscal side with Treasury leading and on, from the Fed on the other. And then I guess the other thing is the, just the scale of the global crisis, the drama on the, on the particularly on the American side, this, the scale of policy response. And then thirdly, I think it would be the wave of shocks that have headed towards the emerging markets and the lower income countries, the scale of that withdrawal and the scale, frankly, of the global lockdown effort. And there's ILL numbers the only organisation which really scans the whole global labour market with 2.7 billion workers worldwide under one or other type of lockdown arrangement. I think that's... Yeah, the numbers are mind-blowing. All of them, yeah. I mean, that Macron interview is quite... You see, it goes on about anthropological shock all the time. I'm a little bit leery about using that term, but nevertheless, he's trying to kind of wrestle with this idea of a comprehensive planet-wide experience that's quite novel. So let's come to anthropology towards the end. Let's do the American side of it. You talked in your LRB piece about one thing that has already started to open up, the gap between the extraordinary capacity and in some respects nimbleness of what the Fed has done, maybe the Treasury too, and then the dysfunctionality of what we might call the democratic side of American politics. Helen, do you think in the last month that gap has widened? In a way, yes, but I think that it's quite striking if you go back to the question that you initially asked Adam that as I recall though I've somewhat lost sense of time that when we were trying to talk the three of us last time that it wasn't so clear that the Fed could actually stabilize financial markets because I think it's been somewhat forgotten given the as I say the strange sort of sense of what's happening in time that we're living with at the moment that the Fed's initial policy response to the turbulence in financial markets that had initially been let loose by what happened with oil over that weekend was a failure, a mm -hmm. complete and utter failure, and that it didn't do what previous you know, Fed interventions since the last crisis, since the crash, had achieved, which was to stabilise share and bond markets again. So we then, if you like, had this, the Fed pushing the nuclear option so to speak, and it has now, at least in part, in significant part, succeeded where it had initially failed. And it's not just succeeded in terms of stabilising the share and bond markets, it's largely, it seems, succeeded in, in stabilising dollar funding markets. And it did so by acting you know, incredibly quickly, effectively doing in about three days in regard to dollar swaps, what it had done over the course of a year, if you go back mm. to 2007. Mm. 2008. So I think that it's it, it's too simplistic really to say, look, it was simple 
the Fed success versus democratic political failure, because initially what the Fed did didn't work. And then there's the question of, well, what are the consequences of this going to be? And are the Fed's actions going to fuel in the medium term more democratic political anger and make democratic politics more difficult? Because in one sense, what the Fed has done is provide a bailout where investors are concerned for absolutely everybody. And there will be a political reaction to that that democratic politics is then going to have to absorb. Is what you call the nuclear option buying corporate bonds and including junk bonds in that? I would is say that, that the nuclear bit? Yeah, I mean, that's the most dramatic nuclear bit of it. But it's also essentially saying where straightforward, more straightforward QE is concerned, you know, we'll buy anything for us as long as it takes. And I would say then on the dollar funding side of it, it's also been not just providing dollar swaps to those states that received them last time, not just the European Central Bank, the Bank of England um, and Japan, but some other emerging market economy states as well, but effectively providing support indirectly to those central banks, which in the end is going to include the, the Chinese central bank, who are going to be able to borrow dollars against their treasury bond holders. Adam, last time we spoke, the, the Fed was moving towards this kind of action very rapidly in dollar swaps, but the corporate bond buying scheme, I think, hadn't yet happened. Is that a huge step, the buying up of corporate bonds, including some fairly worthless ones? It is. And I think it's another way of subverting the distinction that we started with that I completely agree with with Helen on in that the Fed's ability to do that on the scale that it's doing it depends on cooperation, actually, with uh, essentially a, a loss guarantee provided by Treasury, which started out being tiny because the congressional deal hadn't been done, was they used this thing called the Exchange Equalization Fund, which is a, a kind of a legacy of 1930s FDR era exchange rate management. It's sort of a slush fund for the US Treasury, which the Treasury can deploy at its discretion in moments of crisis like that. And that then in turn enables the Fed to invoke so-called Article 1333 emergency powers. Um, And it's under that which they made the announcement that they were going to do corporate bond buying in the first instance. Everyone knew it wasn't large enough at that point to actually backstop the scale of program. So this is now 23rd of March, we're talking about the Monday. And then as it were, over the next days, the clock was ticking for Congress to come through with the deal that was necessary to actually expand that fund to an adequate scale. And it's when it became clear Wednesday, Thursday, that it was actually going to go through the Senate and the House, that as it were, all of the pieces clicked into place. And then subsequently, what they've done is to widen the range of corporate debt they'll buy up to, as you're saying, and including high yield junk bond stuff, which benefits a whole new class of investors. So the Fed's ability to act into that space has, in fact, depended critically on the cooperation of Congress. And that in itself is a you know a spooky effect, if you like, of this particular conjunction that we're in with Trump in the White House. Um, otherwise, the GOP would not be playing ball. And also with regard to the international stuff, I think it's clear that there is some sort of forbearance being exercised or management of what could be the more uncooperative elements of the GOP in Congress. The last time round, when I spoke to Fed bankers, they said they felt as though there was an angel on Capitol Hill that was, as it were, spanning its protective wings over the global elements of the Fed's stabilisation pact. 
this time around, I think it's pretty clear that it's a collaboration between Mushin on the one hand, Powell, who's also worked Congress very assiduously, and Pelosi, all of whom are quite happy to see the Fed doing things which otherwise um, Congress would have to strike difficult political bargains over. You know, the clown show of the presidential news conferences should not detract from some fairly adult, shall we say, cooperation between Congress and the Fed. Whether that will continue is a, is a different matter because it's it depends on Trump being in the White House. If, if Biden were to be elected, expect a, a repeat of 2009 with the GOP going into dogged, destructive, uncooperative, you know, let's make this a one-term presidency, as McConnell said in 2009. You would expect the position to shift dramatically and Fox to pivot immediately to endless discussions about deficits and debt. But so long as we have the current political configuration, that enables the GOP or that the GOP tacticians move into this more pragmatic mode. I did put it too crudely, putting democracy on one side and I guess a kind of technocracy on the other, democracy cuts across. But as Helen said, there is also going to be democratic fallout, never mind whether or not Biden is in the White House. What's going on here, with some echoes of what happened in 2008, is that in desperation, various bits of the American economy are being rescued or bailed out that otherwise wouldn't be. And that's not going to be costless in political terms, right? It depends crucially on political entrepreneurship, really. Are there the the people there who want to take advantage of this and use it in various ways? That's the crucial question. And after all, one of the things that's happened um, is that Sanders disappeared from the Democratic Party race. Extraordinary kind of, you know, non-event in a sense. And it depends really on whether there are people on the GOP side that want to focus attention on the dirty deals that are being done. I mean, the one that I think is really potentially most explosive is the fact that the private equity people are really deep in the in the junk bond um, space. And the sorts of remuneration, the sorts of profits that those folks make are <laughs> multiples. I mean, an order of magnitude larger than even the biggest fat cat on Wall Street or in the city of London. Another so set the, of shocking numbers in a world of shocking numbers. Truly, yeah. And, the, and the, I, in fact, actually once managed to amaze Thomas Piketty with these numbers where, where you know, because the, they're not even in Wall Street. The, the, you know, the big private equity and hedge fund folks prefer really to do work out of Connecticut. So even even our sort of sense of the geography of that money is not is not correct. But yes, yes, their personal pay can be like a billion plus dollars a year quite easily. Whereas, you know, poor old Jamie Dimon slaves away to earn 15 to 50 million. All of a sudden you're in that kind of space. So there's even the perversity of these distressed uh, fund managers complaining about the fact that the Fed's bailouts are working so quickly that there isn't actually enough distressed debt for them to buy. Um, so it is a, a novel configuration of in what is always a business of conflicted interests. We're, we're entering a, an entirely new zone here. I think the other thing, though, is, is at the other end of the politics of it is, is that what is being bailed out by bailing out high yield bond investors is the shale industry. And that is something that the, the Democrats in, in Congress might not quite understand what they're doing in terms of their own intraparty politics because clearly shale is a very difficult issue for the Democratic Party. I mean, at least two of the candidates, Warren and Bernie Sanders, during the primaries were campaigning on the basis that shale production would stop immediately if they were to win the presidency. Now, that's just pie in the sky um, talk, but it shows the depth 
of the feeling, the sentiment against shale on the left side of the Democratic Party. And even Biden himself, he said he's against new shale exploration. And what we've effectively seen is that in acquiescing to what the Fed wanted to do in moving into these corporate bond purchases, that some kind of flaw has been put under the American shale sector. Now, that doesn't mean that it's not going to face a a great deal of of difficulties, but the political ground has has shifted here in ways that are not going to be easily undone. I agree that the the Democratic Party is in a difficult position there, because insofar really as there was an Obamian you know, energy climate policy post-2009 and the failure of the original cap-and-trade vision, it basically consisted in playing cheap shale gas against coal. That was really the, that was the play. That was what enabled the Obama administration to sign up to relatively, well, I mean, so far as you can call them ambitious climate goals in 2015 in Paris. What they were basically relying on was a market-driven solution in which you know, very low shale gas prices would drive very heavily polluting coal out of the energy utility sector. And then beyond that, they were using regulation of power plants to do the work. And I would have expected, and I expect that the Biden and, you know, a Biden team would follow a similar, all of the above was the slogan which they which they used. In other words, shale gas also has a role in our green policy. So I think those are, like Helen's saying, the party is quite conflicted on this issue, but with the demise of the Sanders and Warren campaigns, the really heavy hitting Green New Deal agenda setters are off are off the scene really in the Democratic Party at this point. I think probably they'll take, if you like, the Krona dividend on climate policy and say, well, you know, there are other priorities right now with regard to employment, because the effect of this on, say, the economy of Texas is going to be is going to be fairly devastating. So I agree, it's a losing proposition to make this into a hot political issue. Helen, something else, as it were, hasn't changed since we last spoke to Adam, is the oil price. That is, the oil price collapsed. And that was an initial trigger for the collapse in equity markets. Equity markets have rebounded quite considerably. Oil is still at, by our standards, historic lows. One of those sort of factoids that came out over the weekend that grab people's attention. I believe that Netflix market capitalization is now higher than ExxonMobil. So when people said data was the new oil, well, for a minute anyway, it's true. Is this a, you know, just a passing effect? Or is this when Netflix got bigger than ExxonMobil, was that a historic moment? I'm not sure whether I can really think through it in terms of the uh, Netflix comparison. But I think that what, what we've seen is that something that was occurring independently of what had happened with the virus, which was the tensions in the Russia-Saudi relationship in what became OPEC plus, as it was known, crashed into the the virus and the effective collapse in oil demand. And um, Saudi Arabia's initial response was to try to just flood the oil markets with more um, supply anyway. And um, MBS has had to retreat from that. Now, you could argue that, in fact, there is a way, I think that this is true, that what we've seen is some at least modicum of cooperation between Saudi Arabia, Russia and the United States, and that the prospect that this was going to lead to a a pretty significant cut in oil production led to some recovery in the oil price, obviously nothing like to what it was um, previously even what it was earlier at the beginning of, of this year, but some recovery, but that again sort of fell away again. 
over the, the weekend because there is simply nothing that can be done to change the fact that there is insufficient demand for oil at the moment to keep the price at anything much above it would seem about $20 a barrel. I think some of the ways in which the, the politics of, of that have played out and Trump's attempts to look like he was in sort of brokering a compromise between Saudi Arabia uh, and Russia are not entirely without um, significance. But at the same time, is is what he claimed that he could do, which was push prices back up again in a meaningful way, has um, has not happened. And it's pretty difficult to see how prices are going to recover any time um, soon because we're looking at such a significant blow to the, the world economy and it's going to take some time for any kind of economic recovery to take place. And when it does, there is a quite real possibility that there's still going to be much less movement of peoples around and that demand for oil in the transportation sector is going to remain low for um, some time. Now, that is going to cause and is already causing you know, quite some problems because if we leave aside the question of what's going on in Saudi Arabia, Russia and um, the American shale sector, there's the other oil producers and Mexico is already you know, in in some crisis, the Mexican state oil companies in a debt crisis. And it's not at all difficult to see how those emerging market economies with oil sectors are going to end up in severe trouble, even when the economic recovery begins. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Adam, do you think it's possible that this is a fundamental shift, a behavioral shift, and that what we're seeing with oil and the oil price just over a matter of weeks will be something that people will look back on as marking a turning point. It's an extraordinary shock. I mean, one of the one of the real surprises of this crisis is that it brought the Texas Railroad Commission back to the forefront of American political economy. This is the again a legacy really of the early twentieth century, but it's the commission that used to regulate the movement of oil by railway car, and it was effectively from the thirties onwards the the management of the American oil cartel. So it's it regulated production. It's America's internal quasi-government corporatist OPEC. And so as to have a party, as it were, that's capable of entering into this grand politics of oil that Helen's been talking about so insightfully between Russia and Saudi Arabia, as it were, America needs needs an actor. Part of that is, as it were, the big companies like Exxon, but but that Exxon is only part of the American oil industry. Much of it is much more fragmented. And the Texas Railroad Commission all of a sudden entered the news as an agency which might resume its role in regulating production. Um, if it did, that would indeed be a you know a nice sort of political marker. Another way, I think, of reading this oil moment, uh, very complementary to, to what Helen's saying, is to say also that this could be, as it were, the beginning of the end game. I mean, why is the competition so vicious? Why, after all, would it not be possible for Saudi, for instance, simply to say the oil's more valuable if we leave it in the ground? We can pump it later. 
let whoever wants to compete for this, as you're saying, depressed global market, we'll wager on the fact that oil prices will rise again in future and just keep our oil buried and we can borrow against that asset, which you know will have a high value in future once the other people have competed for whatever demand is available during the corona crisis. Why are the Saudis not willing to be patient in the way they have been in the past? And one of the potential interpretations of that is that essentially we're in the oil endgame now. So all of the actors have in a sense drunk the climate Kool-Aid, obviously not with any enthusiasm, but just recognising that the days of fossil fuels may be numbered, in which case not all the oil is going to get burned. And so then the question is, whose oil gets burned in the couple of decades in which we're still doing this? And that then is, as it were, the overarching structure within which this price war takes place, because then it becomes quite urgent to seize market share immediately, drive out the high cost producers so that at least for the next 20 years, whilst oil is being pumped in abundance, it's you that does it and that you earn the revenue. So that may be the way in which this, it's not just as it were a struggle for immediate market advantage, that struggle itself is framed by this longer term calculation. I think that there's there's several um, th- really interesting things that um, Adam said there. I mean, I'm a little bit more sceptical that there's a sense that oil's in the end game for reasons to do with an energy transition. I think yeah, I put that, it very much in the hypothetical. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I yeah. think passing the politics of, of OPEC for an outsider who's you know not in the room <laughs> ever. Like, no, no. Uh, we should do it stri- strictly in the hypothetical. Absolutely. But I think that the, that the problem that, that all of the producers, in some sense, of the um, that Saudi Saudi Arabia has actually more than Russia, is that the way in which the Saudi state works is dependent on oil production. It cannot move away from oil without causing extreme economic and political dysfunctionality. And the basic problem that the world has faced, in some sense, I'd say, since the the mid two thousands, is that it needs shale oil for there to be sufficient supply if we leave aside the past you know, a few months or so but that causes real serious political difficulties for everybody else it's not like that there's a way in which this problem is going to be sorted out by what's the long-term good for the economy or the long-term good for the planet because the incentives that face each individual state where the state runs the oil companies and that face individual producers you know as in the united states are overwhelming from from their point of view. And I think that what the Saudis will have learned, perhaps painfully for the, the second time, is, is they cannot drive out the American producers out of the, the market. And it's really interesting, this the resurgence of the Texas Railroad Commission, because obviously it came about in the 1930s. And part of its point wasn't just to, you know, to allow for production quotas. Well, the point of the production quotas was to keep prices higher than they would otherwise be. I mean, that was actually part of the the New Deal project in a number of respects that the prices for producers had to be higher in order yeah, to, make, an anti-deflation to make project. Yeah, to make them um, viable. And what we might be now seeing in in the United States is is that that political problem of how to keep oil prices in the medium term sufficiently high for America's producers might be coming back in its 1930s form. So to connect up the dots here, um, I guess what we're saying really is that the oil and the financial elements of this crisis are incredibly closely connected. And that in the Saudi case, as Helen's saying, it runs through the budget. I mean, it's a politically fragile state which needs oil to generate 
a lot of revenue to avoid sliding into fiscal crisis. The Russians have built this strategic exchange reserve, which they use at moments like this to play power politics with. And as Helen's saying, what's been revealed in the US is that because of the entanglement of shale with bits of the high yield junk bond market and with the scale of the Texas economy, when the price pressure builds up on the Americans to the point at which shale looks as though it's going to become a financial crisis, what do we see? Well, the Fed steps in. So in a sense, the Fed's action in being willing to backstop the funding stream for high yield and that kind of exotic thing is de facto a support policy for shale. I think that's the that's the sort of arc of the conversation that, that we've been having. And, and so that, of course, sends a pretty powerful message to the other oil producers that this very troublesome American actor that entered the picture 10 years ago is not going away, not only because of the demand balance issues that Helen was alluding to, but also because the American government, when push comes to shove, is in fact willing to stand behind that, that industry. So that would suggest that even in this anthropological crisis, the old maxim, never let a crisis go to waste, applies because it's been very convenient. If, if shale was going to have to be rescued at some point, this is great cover. I've, I mean, I'm not so. <laughs> I'm not sure anyone would describe this as convenient. Um, I know, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> because I'm not, it is also <laughs> a different kind of crisis. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm not I, find, I find that I don't think Shale is thinking, rubbing its hands, thinking, "Oh, this is excellent. This is our cunning plan is, you know, is working to perfection." I know. I wasn't. Um, I didn't. I didn't think it was a conspiracy. I just yeah, thought it was convenient. I, I, and I'm not. I don't think you know. We're, we're not out of the woods here yet. Like. Uh, because it turns out, as Helen's been saying, like this, the price isn't being stabilised at a level that's at all comfortable. And we don't know what the politics of the high yield bailout are going to be you know, down the pike. So we need to wait and see. But it is true that, as it were, things were strung together. I, look, thinking about the Fed right now, I'm, I'm sceptical that oil was high. I mean, I, it has this effect. It's undeniably true that if you, if you stabilise the high yield bond market, you are de facto stabilising shale funding. Other funding too, but amongst other things, shale funding. But I, I, I'm not convinced, and we would, you know, we'll have to see again as evidence emerges from inside the Fed and what's been going on. And, and everyone, of course, is very fascinated by that right now. But I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that, as it were, a sectoral deal for, for shale was not the fundamental driver of the expansion of, of Fed activism. I think they were basically playing whack-a-mole. They were just banging, you know, in every single area where they saw instability in financial markets, they were going to spring in and basically provide some sort of safety net. And yes, high yield was there, but I, I'm not sure that the dots were joined up to that extent on their part. Functionally, it does indeed have the effects that we've been talking about. So Adam, let's touch on Europe before you go. I'm sure we'll talk about this again. You mentioned Macron's interview with the Financial Times in which he did indeed use the word anthropological quite a lot. It's quite hard to think of any other world leader who yeah. used that word it's so It's staggering. Often. I mean, if you can get access to it, read the transcript. It's really... Well, you can watch it on YouTube. It's even better. Oh, no, wait. Pretty... I didn't even know that. But it's really oh, yeah, I... Kubrick, Dr. Strangelove style, like, you know, meanderings. Yeah, yeah no, you can, t- you can see mind. him talking about anthropology like it was a lecture at the Sorbonne sitting in the Elysee. It's great. Yeah, it's amazing, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but it also obviously gets to the thing that we did touch on last time, corona bonds and how Europe is going to get through this. Has Macron moved the dial? Have the Spanish moved the dial? They've been doing things overnight. Has anyone moved the dial on corona bonds? 
this is the question of this week. What I found a little terrifying about that interview is that this is the Macron interview that because several of them, Bruno Le Maire did an interview, the French finance minister, Conte, the Italian prime minister, has been doing interviews with the Germans. I mean, there's clearly a media push this weekend. But what I didn't see in the Macron interview was any an indication of what the French tactical position is going to be in the sense that there was a lot of generality. I mean, this is a cliche about Macron that he does this, you know, he does, he does this big picture stuff. And he was a sort of deliberately vague about details and institutional specifics. But for me, really, the, it's a fundamental question is that if you make the kind of initiative that they did with the nine heads of government pushing for Corona bonds and really forcing the issue to the top of the agenda in what surely must have been the expectation that the Dutch, at least, and probably the Germans too, would say no. What's the next step? Not the plan B, but what is the second move in this game plan? Because the first move is going to face resistance. So what is your second move? And what I didn't see in Macron's interview was any hint at all that he actually takes the alliance of nine seriously as an alliance. There's no mention of that at all. There's lots and lots of lots about national sovereignty and solidarity of a rather sentimental type with the Italians and the Spanish and the fact that they made the sacrifice of, you know, being the first European states to experience the virus and learn how to fight it. But he never ever says anywhere. And if the Dutch and the Germans really say no, then we would consider moving with our with this coalition. And I think that's, to me, the move that has to be contemplated at this point, a coalition of the willing so-called amongst those who do see an advantage in pooling risk and pooling funding costs. And that's missing. Le Maire, interestingly, in an interview he gave to a Greek newspaper, was clearly prodded about this and said that he thought it was a non-optimal, not his preferred strategy. And I think that is the sense that there's a huge tension within French government between the presidential wing, which is big think, big initiative, the Macron kind of side, and the French treasury, of course, which since the 1980s has been pursuing a policy of alignment with Germany and would see no advantage in a coalition with the Italians and the Spanish and the Portuguese, the Irish and so on. So the, the may, there may be a you know a power struggle going on in Paris between those two wings of the French state. I mean, I think that there's a real parallel here and it explains why Macron is, is so reluctant, actually, as you say, Adam, to really, really to contemplate the, the group of nine option. And the parallel is with what happened in 2012 when Hollande came to um, office and that, uh, you know, Hollande had wanted to set himself up. In fact, he'd sort of suggested during the um, French presidential campaign that he wasn't really very happy with the you know, the fiscal compact uh, and that I think it was the first of the either the EU or the Eurozone summits, I can't remember which, you know, that he went to, that he made quite a play about allying um, with the Italians and the, um, the Spanish. And, you know, in some respects that it finished his presidency off, it did serious damage to his his presidency because Merkel on these Eurozone questions never really took him seriously. So if you look at what had happened when um, Sarkozy was was president, there was all that talk about Mercosi as the duo that were were managing the, the Eurozone crisis together. If you look at what happened during the Greek crisis in, in 2015, then France was was largely irrelevant. Given that so much of early Macron, at least, was a, a repudiation of what 
Hollande had done and sort of kind of a Francis back and Francis back meant ally and back with Germany again, it would be a massive step for, for Macron to to basically side against the Germans in actually making an alliance with uh, with other with other states. Having said that, I agree with you entirely, Adam, is it's, I don't really know what he thinks he's doing. Because if you make this proposal and you know that the, the Germans are not going to um, support it and then you haven't got anywhere else to go, all that you've done is to deepen the frustration that Merkel and other German ministers already feel with Macron. It's just sort of, it's just gesture politics. No, it's really, I think that is not, not to be underestimated. And it's clear that people in the German finance ministry, because there were rumours, I can't remember that whether they'd already started when we last spoke, but there were rumours of a proposal like this coming forward in Eurogroup meetings. And clearly the, the German finance ministry was doing everything it possibly could to repress this question. Because the last thing that someone like Olaf Scholz wants to have to do is to choose between his European ideals, if you like, on the one hand, which I think I think are quite genuine, but no less genuine is his extreme caution as an SPD politician in feeling and wanting to take a strong position on, on Euro bonds. So they just didn't want the question to be put. And then the French went ahead and did it, not just on their own, but with this big coalition in a dramatic way, which though the Euro bond issue has been bobbing around European politics, as Helen's suggesting, all the way back to the Eurozone crisis, had not really ever been put, certainly not with the pressure of a corona crisis behind it, in this sort of overt way. So it's really, I mean, I think history may judge Macron's leadership on this very harshly. And and not just the Germans will end up, of course, disillusioned, but what are, what is Madrid, what is Rome to think if, if as were, they're led into this charge, this glorious cavalry charge through a bigger Europe by France, only to find that when push comes to shove, as it did in the last Eurogroup meeting, the French finance minister prefers, as does his German counterpart, the German finance minister, to pose as the mediators in a battle which is now between the unreasonable Dutch and the needy Italians. I mean, that's not what that coalition of the nine was supposed to be. and that's But that's de facto the role that Le Maire played. I mean, there's, uh, there's a lot of decentralised politics going on here. It's important to think in terms of states, but it's also quite important to think of the role of a finance minister as opposed to the chancellor, the Eurogroup as a rather distinct kind of ecotope that somebody like Yanis Varoufakis exposed to us. And things go on there in relations between an Olaf Scholz and a Bruno Le Maire, who apparently are quite close personally, that in some ways soften and they compromises appear as a result, but also subvert the grander political logics that the principal actors, so the Merkels and the Macrons of this world, are actually trying to promote, or or maybe not. And that's the thing. You know, how serious are they, in fact, as Helen's saying, or is this all just gesture? Adam, is there any mileage in, I can't claim to understand the details of it, but this Spanish plan that's being floated, which uh, tries to get away from the issue of bonds and simply advocates the creation of a huge fund and then transfers. Is there anything in that? Oh, I, th- I take the Spanish proposal to be still continuous with the idea of bond because the, how will the fund be funded? The fund will be funded, they say, through joint debt instruments for, for Europe. What they're trying to do, I think, is to soften politically the exclusive focus on on the bonds and try and shift to a grander vision, a more comprehensive vision of a Brussels-based, so a federal reconstruction response. 
that that paper's quite choice. It also has this great parting shot about the necessity of focusing on uh, taxation reform um, within the EU, which is code for okay, you know, it's basically a warning shot to the Dutch um, that uh, the Spanish would be willing to open the can of worms, which is tax harmonisation, where the Dutch are an uncooperative, basically tax haven. So, so I think that paper is. I take that to be, as it were, if Paris, if Paris, Italy, and Spain had jointly signed on to that this weekend, that would be the concerted recommitment to the alliance of the nine that Helen and I are both finding absent in the French position at this point. I think it's quite striking, though. Is is one? I mean, I only read it quickly this morning. Is is that the idea would seem to be that the taxes that would, in the long term, be required to back this borrowing? would come from the directly from the EU budget. So that it wouldn't involve creating any new tax-raising authority at all. But I have to say that regardless of what happens in the you know, like immediate weeks ahead, the idea that in the medium term that investors are going to be impressed, I think, by debt issued that has as a backing the EU budget, given that we know how the politics of the EU budget and work seems to me to be extremely unlikely. In that sense, what the Spanish paper dodges is that fundamental question is, is how does the Eurozone engage in common borrowing without engaging in common taxation and having a site of authority that is going to make those um, decisions? And it just basically, sort of, as far as I can see, sort of settles for, for a substitute way of doing it that will be entirely, in the end, lacking in financial market credibility. And altogether, I mean, that's another hot issue for this week is how far it's safe to link Corona, Corona reconstruction, Corona finance to the the European budget or not. And that's the issue that's being debated tactically, because it seems that the Commission would actually quite like the multi-year budget to be the vehicle for the COVID-19 response. And many politically astute tacticians are saying well that would be lethal because then all of a sudden we're in the business of relations with eastern europe and we're in the hickhack of the european budget whereas what we actually need is a concerted and immediate response to this specific crisis so it's very interesting how these fault lines explode in a sense the emphasis has shifted away from the ecb which was in the first couple of weeks like helen was saying where we were still trying to figure out how the central bank response will work was very much classically the centre of attention. What will the ECB be able to do? That's now just the sort of stabilising framework in the background that everyone's actually relying on to ensure that we don't have a bond market panic today. And then, however, what emerges are these quite fundamental issues really about the constitution of the EU, not just the Eurozone, but the EU going forward. And indeed, how could you possibly issue a joint debt instrument that's what will give it its its high rating is that it's backed by some re, you know reliable revenue flow. So, what is that revenue flow going to be? This is probably putting it much too simplistically, but Helen, is it is the catch twenty two here that any plan that tries to get away from looking like it's using the Germans as collateral is not going to convince the markets, and any plan that does convince the markets is going to make the Germans very uncomfortable? Is that what's going on? To some extent, yes. Well, I think that there's a kind of like an underlying um, political problem that the the eurozone faces it actually goes beyond this immediate issue that um, we've been talking about and that is that um, the way in which that germany accepted monetary union and indeed accepted the the maastricht 
um, treaty gave Germany a structurally privileged position within the European Union because it gets via its constitutional court to set some limits on what kind of European integration, to use that language, can take place in relation to constitutionality for Germany itself. So what is compatible with German basic law? Now, for quite a long time, at least you could say until the Eurozone um, crisis began, it didn't look like that fault line in the European Union had much actual practical consequence. It was theoretical more than um, consequential. And I think that what began in the Eurozone crisis last time when we're now um, seeing again is is that, you know, like what Germany matters does just matter more than what any other member state, um, particularly when it comes to, you know, Eurozone matters. So I think that because we've had a, a demonstration of that through the previous European Central Bank um, purchasing programmes and the decisions that the courts um, made around that, investors are going to be much more focused on that issue in their willingness to hold debt that's either supported by the European Central Bank with its purchasing programmes or any future debt that's that's commonly um, issued than they would have been back in the pre-2009 um, world. This is just a, a reality that has to be accepted by everybody else in trying to find remedies to the problems that the Eurozone faces. And the uh, German Constitutional Court was actually due to give a judgment on the 2015 round of Draghi QE. Every round of ECB activism, um, really since the judgment on the Lisbon Treaty, which the German court delivered in 2009, has been subject to a challenge from the German left or the German right. And the German court was supposed to give a judgment, I think, on the 23rd of March or maybe the 24th, that week anyway, which was a low point of the financial crisis unleashed by COVID. He was supposed to give a judgment mercifully because of the COVID lockdown provisions on the 16th, whilst the central banks were really stepping up their efforts, the court announced it would defer that. And so we're now expecting a ruling by the German Constitutional Court on the legality of the last but one. So it's not even the 19 round of QE, let alone the current round, but the one from 2015 on, I think, the 5th of May. So that is going to be another one of these sort of cliffhanger moments in Eurozone history when we hear whether or not the cause, which isn't in Berlin, but in Karlsruhe, whether it will... Well, this is the thing. So what 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 is it likely to say? It's very unlikely, I think, that it's going to declare that ECB action is per se illegal, but the mere whiff of any uncertainty on its point or any wording in that finding or that judgment by the court that would suggest that it might take a more aggressive view of 2020 actions would, would as, as Helen's saying, make a lot of people quite jumpy. So Helen's back with me again on Monday evening. We're just going to very briefly try and make sense of what is going on with the oil price. As Helen said at the beginning, it's it's almost incomprehensible, but we hope not completely. And it is also, I think, quite technical, Helen. So this this extraordinary collapse in a matter of just an hour or two, that's not that doesn't reflect a fundamental in the market, but it is an indicator of something, right? Well, in one sense, it reflects a, a fundamental in the market, and that is that demand has crashed, and that supply was there was far too much um, supply generated by what MBS 
in Saudi Arabia decided to do um, at the um, beginning of March, and that caused, aside from anything else, quite a number, in some areas at least, of of storage problems. But what's basically gone on on Monday afternoon is is that those people holding oil future contracts for May were in the position whereby if they did not sell those contracts, get rid of them by Tuesday, um, then they would have to take delivery of oil. And the people who buy oil future contracts are not buying those contracts because they want oil delivered to them. So essentially, they're looking for people to take oil off their hands because they don't want it delivered. They don't want to be holding the contract at the moment when purchase has to um, occur and delivery um, is um, taken. But given that everybody else is in exactly the same position, then nobody wants to be buying contracts. I think, though, that what we can see is too simplistic to say that it's a it's a technical problem. And it, it says something, I think, quite significant about the interaction between financial markets and oil in some sense, if you like, the financialization of oil markets that began in the 1980s or began in a significant degree in the 1980s. And essentially this financialization is massively now at this moment in in time complicating the already horrendous problems facing um, oil producers. But in one sense, I think if you're an oil producer, the grimmest thing looking at this today is, is that the expectation in the futures market is, is that going into like two years time, that oil would not have recovered to a price that is profitable for most producers. And the, there is going to be quite, you know, in some sense, immense political um, fallout from that, um, because it's just not possible that the uh, the Trump administration is going to you know, contemplate the complete bankruptcy of the American shale sector. So we can't say that today is an oil shock like the famous oil shocks of the past, but it is likely to have repercussions that potentially even change some of the scenarios we were talking to Adam about. I mean, this could signal real change. It's certainly going to, I think, um, speed things up and um, focus minds. I think in one sense, we have to separate out the fact that this is in one sense, you know, incomprehensible. I think that if you'd said that this was what was likely to happen and when we were actually um, talking um, earlier, then it would have been one of those conversations where we thought we were just kind of like winding each other up that something bad was or something different anyway was bound to happen because of the fact that we'd made a recording about something and that by the time it went out that you know the world would be different. And, and I have to say you did text me and say it's gone below zero <laughs> and I didn't understand what that meant <laughs> so, and that was two hours ago. Now I'm much the wiser. But what I would say is is that in this sense, we shouldn't be surprised because, you know, if you look at the, you know, the history of the, the 20th century, when you find, you know, like world crises of varying kinds, you find deep oil crises of varying kinds. They don't take the same shape, but you know, there isn't any way in which you can have the kind of massive economic crisis that we are presently living through without simultaneously having a massive oil crisis of one kind or another. So we will now put this out. If it changes again by tomorrow morning, um, we will catch up with it a little bit after that. 
You can find all of Adam's writing in the London Review books at lrb.co.uk and in our show notes. Plus, follow us on Twitter at tppodcast underscore, and you will find all the links. We're back in our regular slot this week, talking to Diane Coyle about other aspects of the economic crisis. And next week, we're launching Talking Politics, History of Ideas. My name is David Runciman, and we've been Talking Politics. Um, so we literally just do a scene setting thing which we put at the beginning and then at the end I'll ask you if you have any do you know what it means by the way just like, I'm not entirely well, I understand that some of it's you about, got something yeah, yeah. okay um, okay um, the conversation that you're about to hear we recorded at 1pm London time 8am New York time on Tuesday by the time we were just getting ready to put it out the oil futures price collapsed. Sorry, was it Tuesday? Is it not Monday? It's Monday, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good, good point well made. That's what... I am listening. Point, I do listen across this. I don't just go and read a book. Please. Okay, I'll do that again. <laughs> okay. Uh, when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.